Welcome to Meet the Early Day Saints, a Wayfair Magazine short audio series. I'm your host, Blair Hodges, and I'm thrilled to take you on this journey through time to meet the earliest disciples of Jesus. Together with esteemed Latter-day Saint scholars, we'll take a look at similarities and differences between ancient Christian faith and ours today. We'll challenge some common assumptions and gain a deeper understanding of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So get ready to embark on a remarkable audio excavation back to the foundations of our faith. Let's meet the early day saints. Welcome back to Meet the Early Day Saints. We're joined today by Dr. Gay Strathern, professor of ancient scripture at Brigham Young University. This series is about the book Ancient Christians, an introduction for Latter-day Saints from the Neely Maxwell Institute at BYU. And Dr. Strathern contributed a chapter called Human Nature, Creation and the Fall. All right, Dr. Strathern, welcome to Meet the Early Day Saints. Thanks, Blair. Thanks for having me. Your chapter, Human Nature, begins in a really lovely way, and and I thought it would be nice to have you read from the scripture that you quote right at the outset here. It's really some really lovely verses from Psalm 8, and would you read those for us to get things started? Sure. Let me put it in context. So we have the psalmist contemplating the magnificent wonder of God and his heavenly creations, and then he wonders why God takes such an interest in humans. With that in mind, verse 4 reads, What are human beings that you are mindful of them, mortals that you care for them? And I'm quoting here from the NRSV. And then we find the psalmist's response to his own question reflected in a, a very positive understanding of human nature. He says that God made humans a little lower then, and then depending on the version, right, uh, if it's the Hebrew Bible, it says God made humans a little lower than the gods. The Septuagint reads uh, a little lower than the angels and says that he crowned them with glory and honor and gave them dominion over all God's other creations. It's a really lovely psalm. It kind of reminds me in the book of Moses where Moses is sort of wondering a similar thing. Like he sees this grand vision and then says, oh, now now I realize that, that we're nothing. <laughs> that's right. Yeah. And so what is it about us that makes us so special? Yeah. Yeah, that's right. And why begin the chapter there? How does that kind of set the stage to talk about human nature? Well, I was just thinking about it in terms of those kind of questions are going to kind of influence uh, some of the questions that the early Christian writers are going to be asking about. They're going to turn immediately to Genesis 1, 26 and 27, but they're looking at it from the sense of why did God make this, put humans in this privileged position over other creations. And, and they're trying to figure out what's humanity's connections with the gods. And so as they go in and start really looking at the scriptures, they're going to be asking questions that the scriptures don't always immediately give a direct answer for. And, and one of the reasons that this is really important is because it so, has so many implications for other really, really important questions that Christians are asking. So it's it's very much tied to the natures of God and Christ, right? How they, they think about human nature is in a, in a way separating us from, from, from God. Um, it talks about they're interested in this, this question of free will and what's its impact on humans. Uh, how did we get evil in the world? And, and why on earth do we need a form of salvation? Right? So those big questions, they're all going to be tied up with what they're trying to do here. 
That's right. It's also interrelated, and your chapter does a really nice job of of pointing people to that fact that any claim about any one of those questions has implications for other questions. Like you said, the nature of God impacts what it means to be human, and what it means to be human uh, has things to say about what it means to be a god, or, or what sin is, or what the purpose of life is. I mean, it's it's this sort of web of of information that if, if you kind of mess with any little part of it, if you pull one little thread, you're kind of pulling the whole tapestry. Yeah, and I don't think that's unique to this. I think in, in any kind of scriptural endeavor, those kind of things happen. My my experience is, is I often think about when I was a young teenager, I thought I knew the scriptures pretty well. You know, I could, I'd been studying them for a while and I'd give a talk and I could quote scriptures and things like that. But now looking back some 40 years later, I'm thinking I knew nothing then, yeah. right? Because the more I've learned, it's kind of like going through a door and and. I get all of these other doors that mm-hmm. I have to go through and I have to choose and pick. And, and that's that's one of the fun things I think about scripture and studying. It's a lifetime experience. Yeah, it could be really eye-opening too because you get some different perspectives. I mean, it's I used to kind of see one story that the Bible sort of told from beginning to end and – the more studying I did, I could see there were different voices, there were different perspectives, and different Latter-day Saints might even say like dispensations. So there's, I, I always love that we have canonized speculation in the Book of Mormon. <laughs> I call it this, like, I think it's Alma who's like, his son's asking him about what happens at death or whatever. And Alma's like, well, it actually, I don't know. I think it could be like this. And that's canonized. It doesn't match up necessarily with section 76 of the Doctrine and Covenants or other restoration scriptures. So we get to see glimpses of times of belief as well as we're looking at scripture. And I think the other thing that's really, really important is that scriptural texts, like any text, has to be interpreted Right. Um, the words are, uh, are one thing, but it needs to be interpreted. The Constitution, great document, but it has to be interpreted to have that's meaning. Right. And scriptures also have to do that. And so that's what the early Christians are doing. They're going in and trying to understand scriptural texts and scriptural texts that don't give them huge discourses that talk about all of the implications and how it's to be implied and things like that. And they've got to work through that for themselves. What does this mean for me in my situation? And that's going to be a little different uh, according to the person doing it. That's right. So you mentioned Genesis 1. What are Christians, broadly speaking, I know we're simplifying here, but what are people noticing in Genesis 1 that kind of gives the broad picture of of what humans are? Well, um, they're probably it's the questions that they're asking that I think is important, right? We know that Genesis 1, 26, 27 says, God created Adam and Eve in his image according to their likeness. So some of the questions that they start asking is, well, what does it mean that humans are created in the image of God? And there's lots of ways that uh, people across time have interpreted that. Um, They're also asking, is there a difference between being created in the image of God and the likeness? Are they just synonymous terms or are they referring to different things? Um, And what does it mean and why is it that humans are created in the image of God, but when he talks about the creation of animals, it's they're created after their own kind? Mm -hmm. So that's, that's really setting humans apart from the creation of the rest of God's creation. So is the image of God a human mind or soul? Is it refer to the body? Does it refer to the whole person? Does it refer to a moral virtue? Does it refer to human or to Christ? 
Um, and if it does refer to Christ, is we talking about the incarnate Christ, the embodied Christ, or are we talking about the transcendent word of God? The, and that, there's all questions coming out of, what, one and a half verses, right? Yeah, one and a half verses. That's right. And and that story itself, also you point out that the term fall, that the Hebrew Bible itself doesn't say fall, right? That's It's not found in the biblical text. There's no notion of Adam corrupting everyone. This is something that later Christians might come up with. So there's also a question about, about human identity in terms of like, are they good? Are they evil? What's their moral status right. that the text leaves ambiguous? Yeah. And so the, the fall and what happens in the Garden of Eden becomes really, really important. So who's responsible for bringing sin and death? into the world is it adam and eve is it god because god created adam and eve and so if he created them then did they have any choice in that matter was satan the one that was responsible or is it that it should just be read that adam and eve are a type for all humans Um, and so they just go through as a kind of an allegory of what all humans go through in life so all of those things become really important parts of the discussion as well the, yeah, the term fall isn't found in Genesis or in the Bible. When To refer to what Adam and Eve did and the effect that it has on the rest of mortality, that doesn't actually come up. Of course, in the Book of Mormon, we have that mm-hmm. significantly. But it doesn't come up until about the 5th century when a guy by the name of Methodius seems to be the first person who talks about the fall in mm. terms of Adam and Eve's choice in the garden. So early Jewish commentaries, when they're looking at Adam, they see Adam very positively, Mm. right? He's a a patriarch, a hero, a man of great wisdom in the earliest texts. So they're not seeing it in the same way as later Christians are going to understand it. And then, of course, there's all sorts of ideas, too, about Eve. Uh, and, right. you know, was she this person who messed everything up? Was she did something evil or she's, you know, we could blame Eve for this. And it just keeps opening up more and more questions. Right. And your chapter is great because it's getting us to think alongside these early Christian thinkers. And you you introduce us to three people in particular. Um, the first one's Irenaeus. And this Irenaeus was this Christian figure in the second century. And he wrote this book this book called Against Heresies. So It was so five kind of, volumes. Yeah. Book. Okay, there you go. Yeah. <laughs> See, I haven't actually read that book or the five volumes. So, uh, yeah. So it's this big sweeping thing. Yeah. And what was he coming up with around the second century to make sense of these questions about who humans are and what our nature is? Well, I think the first thing that we need to understand about Irenaeus is that he's writing for a particular reason. And he's writing against other Christians who have a very different uh, view of Christianity than he does. And so he's responding to certain teachings that there. So, for example, he's responding to Christians who believed that the body was evil, that humans become spiritual only when they get rid of the the body. It's been stripped off. The flesh has been stripped off. And that the other main one is that they're teachings that God created uh, humans with different natures. Some humans he created with a human nature is good and others he created with a human nature that was not good. And this is just in Irenaeus's mind, this is craziness. How can you have a just God doing these kind of things? So as he's kind of going through and responding to them, he has these in the back, the back of his mind. Um, So, Like many early Christians, Irenaeus believed that Christ was the image of God. We see that in 2 Corinthians 4 and Colossians 1, and that by nature, Christ is the only being who is eternally like God. 
right? So when they start thinking about humans being created in the image of God, what they're really thinking here is that humans are created in the, the image of Christ, who is the image of God, right? So that, that becomes an important thing. His major emphasis is that human nature is made up of a soul and a body. Now, for Latter-day Saints, we've got to define soul here because it's not the same way that Doctrine and Covenants define soul as spirit and body, right? Here, soul is, um, it's, it, it's often mind, intellect, rationality, and it's very different. It's not tied to a physical body at all. But Irenaeus is going to argue both the soul and the body are holy and can be saved. Not everybody's going to agree with that, and um, Origin that we'll talk about later doesn't. So, so one of the things that he's also going to do is he's going to make a distinction between what constitutes the image of God and the likeness of God. Both of them can be saved, but they're referring to different things. So Irenaeus is going to say that the human body is formed after the image of God. It is the vehicle that enables humans to perform righteous acts. People become spiritual not because they've gotten rid of their bodies, and you can see his audience that he's responding to here, but because they partake of the spirit. So that's his, his understanding of the image of God. And when he would say image of God, he had sort of in mind Christ, right? Like yeah. he wasn't thinking of God the Father as having per se a body, but rather thinking like we're made in the image of God, meaning Jesus as incarnate, right? Yes. Well, yeah. that's one question, whether whether it's incarnate or whether it's the transcendent word of God, huh. right? So okay. um, they're, they're looking – well, see, and it's it's really kind of complex in terms of bodies, what we think of a body in terms of a physical – corporeal being isn't always the way they're thinking about it for a soul or a spirit Mm. or things that they also have non-fleshly bodies, but that's different for them. When he starts talking about the likeness of God, he understands that as a spiritual aspect that encompasses both the soul and the image. Uh, He thinks that this spiritual element was given to humans when in Genesis 2-7 we hear that God breathed into the breath of life. That's the, the the likeness that him. So without the spiritual element, the soul was imperfect. It may have the image but not the likeness. Um, And so for him, both of these are very, very important in terms of understanding human nature. All right. So that, I mean, that gives us a good idea of Irenaeus. He wasn't the only one uh, of these early Christian thinkers who who really influenced the tradition. You talk about Origen, and he was really different from Irenaeus. What was was. Origen's approach to this? Absolutely. So he's an Egyptian scholar and theologian. He was a brilliant thinker and was really quite um, prolific in his writings. And I need to kind of set this up a little bit because Origen is very careful to say, I believe in the authoritating writings of the church, right? The scriptures, which is the Hebrew Bible, and the writings of the apostles. But he's the one that's really going to articulate, you can't find all of the answers to all of the questions in those texts. Mm -hmm. But he felt if it isn't uh, given authoritatively, then he's in a space where he can explore it and try and work out the answers to the questions that he's asking. Right. And so part of that comes along in his writings. And one of the things that makes him different from Irenaeus is he's probably the first 
Christian writer that starts to think in terms of souls having a pre-existence. And he works this out pretty systematically in his book on first principles. And so why that makes it so different is he starts to interpret the Genesis passages in 1, 26, 27 and 2, 7, not in terms necessarily of a physical creation, but in this pre-mortal realm where souls are created and where souls uh, make choices. They have free will. That's really important in both Irenaeus and in Origen. And so he sees them in terms of thinking about a fall. He sees it in terms of a fall, creation and fall in the pre-existence, not in terms of uh, uh, Genesis and the mortal experience. And that kind of is very, very different. Latter-day Saints like the idea of a pre-mortal existence, right? Um, Sounds familiar, yeah. Some of it we would resonate with, but others we wouldn't, right? But one of the things that he says is that souls are created in this pre-mortal realm. That's really important to him because later people are going to kind of push away from origin saying that he's making souls like God, right? Mm -hmm. Because they have an eternal life. And so he's really strong that they're created and uh, they have free will. And so in the pre-mortal life, they use their free will to either choose to move towards God or choose to move away from God. And he describes that as they choose to move away from God, that there's a cooling effect. That's the language that he uses. Mm -hmm. But what that does is set up a kind of a hierarchy of souls in the pre-mortal life. So some only move away a little bit, some move a lot. And so he's going to say that the devil is the one who moved the furthest away. Mm. Um, and then we've got Christ who also has free will, but he always chooses righteousness. So he never falls away from God and the goodness of that. So that's going to make an impact in terms of how he understands uh, scriptures. Now, there's a reason that he wants to do this, why he's interested in the pre-existence, because when he's reading the scriptures, there's some passages that show up which says that uh, God chose Jacob over Esau before they'd even be born. Mm -hmm. uh, Romans is going to say, Paul says that God loved Jacob, but hated Esau. And he's going, how is that possible? They haven't done anything. If creation begins at birth, that makes God an unfair and an mm -hmm. unjust God. And so he's trying to answer that question. And so he goes to Plato for his sense of the pre-existence of souls. And then that becomes the methodology he uses to come to this. I think it's important to point that out because Latter-day Saints are often – attributing apostasy to like taking like when philosophy sort of corrupted Christianity. But what, what we're seeing with Origen is some ideas about pre-mortality or pre-existence in some ways resonating with Latter-day Saint belief and in other ways not. But this is him producing these ideas or coming to these ideas with philosophy as an assistant to what he's doing rather right. than as a necessarily a corrupter to it. Right. And, and see, for one of the things is there's not much in the Bible to help him with the concept of a pre-existence. Right. He's the only early church father that I've found that turns to 
Jeremiah 1.5 and interprets that in term of a pre-existence. Nobody else does. Yeah, that's before I knew you in the belly, before you were in the womb, I knew you kind of yeah, a thing, right? Yeah, So that's why he's got, he goes elsewhere. Um, and he so also got condemned for that too. He does. Well, what he gets condemned for is as the church moves on and wants a more a literal interpretation of scriptures, and as the church has moved on from Plato to Aristotle, which sees the the real self being both body and spirit, that has some some concerns there. Yeah, and people can learn more about origin in your chapter. There's so much more in there than we can cover just in in this quick conversation. But let's talk about Augustine as this third person that you talk about in the book. This is another really prominent Christian thinker, a person who really impacted the history of Christianity. He's in the late 300s. He's a convert to Christianity. What does he do when it comes to defining human nature? Well, honestly, he's the one that is going to develop the idea of original sin. He didn't always believe. He's a convert to Christianity. He grew up in a home with a a Christian mother and a pagan father. And originally, he had a very positive sense of human nature. But with time, Perhaps scholars have thought because of his own sense of sin and the need for grace, he started to uh, develop uh, the concept of original sin. In coming to that concept, he he uh, was on the foundation of others that had gone before mm-hmm. him. And one of the most important ones of those was Tertullian. And Tertullian's going to argue that souls are created from the souls of their parents at the moment of conception. So that becomes very important. And so the idea that every soul comes from, ultimately, from Adam and Eve, and that it's, uh, this soul is fallen. And then Ambrosiaster, uh, he interpreted uh, or mistranslated Romans 5.12, and that becomes very important. So in the Greek, Romans 5.12 says, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death came through sin, so death spread to all because, and that's the important word, all have sinned, meaning like Adam, all the rest of us have sinned. Right. But Ambrosiaster, um, he comes through and he is going to use a Latin translation and he's going to change that that one word because to mean in whom. So this is how he reads it and talks about it. In whom, that is in Adam, all sinned. Although he is speaking about the woman, he said in whom, because he was referring to the race, not to a specific type. It is clear consequently that all sinned in Adam as a lump. Once he was corrupted by sin, those who begat were all born under sin. All sinners, therefore, derive from him because we are all from him. So after about eight years after his baptism, we see that kind of language in some of um, Augustine's writings. So he's going to say, we have all become one mass of clay, a mass of sin. Um, So his understanding of the effect of Adam and Eve's choices in the garden was very different than the Greek fathers like Irenaeus, who believed all humanity shared in the effects of our first parents' choice, but not in the collective guilt that Augustine espoused. And that eventually is going to come on to his teaching that even infants 
um, need to be baptized because Mm -hmm. if death comes into the world because of sin and infants die, then they have the effects of sin, Mm -hmm. and so they Mm -hmm. need uh, redemption. And it's very different from some of the stuff that came before. As you're looking at these different figures, was there something in Augustine? It's easy for me to dismiss Augustine, right? And just to say, like, I don't like the idea of original sin. It doesn't appeal to me. When you're looking at Augustine, is there a way to look charitably or to kind of like see what his project was about that could resonate with Latter-day Saints? Yeah, I think so. I think one of the difficulties that we have with Augustine is that we see this original um, sin and see that as the end culmination of his teachings, that that was what he was all trying to do. But really for him, original sin was a means to an end. It wasn't the end in and of itself. For him, what he's trying to portray is that is to emphasize that we need Christ. We can't do this without Christ. Free will, a choice to be good, is never going to be enough for right. us to, to, to be redeemed. We need Christ. And even if theoretically a human did not sin, they're still going to need Christ and his atonement and his, his mm. grace. And I think that that's really important for us to remember that if all we see in Augustine is uh, original sin, then, then we miss him and what he's trying to do. Yeah, thank you for that. Wrapping up here, as you did the research for this, you're you're looking at these ancient Christian thinkers. I'm just interested in your own experience of that. If you encountered something in the course of research that shifted your view or that showed you something new that or that excited you or that you were really moved by in in making this chapter. Yeah, I think the thing I came away um with is I'm grateful for these early Christian fathers. They were doing the absolute best that they could, given the circumstances that they had. They loved God. They loved his son, Jesus Christ, and they spent their lives trying to study and to understand and to deepen and nuance their understanding of him. And uh, I honestly think that we could take a lot from them by their consistence and they're willing to study, not superficially, but to ask questions of why, to try and learn more and more about Christ and his atoning sacrifice. And so I'm really grateful um, for them and learn from them. We might come up with different answers than they did to their questions, but their questions were really, really good questions. Um, and we have the benefit of the restoration to help us in answering those questions, but they didn't have that. They just did the best they could. And so they help us see and, and I think help us to nuance different aspects of who we are as individuals in God's sight, to have different aspects of what's going on in in the Garden of Eden, right, where we get so little information, but um, some things that can resonate with us. And we didn't talk about all of them, but as we said, you can read the book. I know. There's so much. I can't believe you were able to kind of make such a short chapter. That must have been one of the hardest parts. <laughs> Actually, it was. Uh, but uh, Jason was on my back to keep it. And as it was, <laughs> I was long. And I wanted to ca- actually to include some stuff by uh, Gregory of Nyssa as well, because mm. he's got some beautiful stuff there as well. But 
I know. It is what so it is. Much. It, well, I, you did a great job. I think this is a really good introduction, right? I mean, that's yeah. in the yeah. in the subtitle. And I think Latter-day Saints that engage with this book and your chapter are going to be introduced to some really great questions, as you said, and, and be able to think alongside some people that really were trying to understand God um, just as we do, to the best that we can. So thank you for that. That's Dr. Gay Strathern, professor of ancient scripture at Brigham Young University, associate dean in religious education. She earned her PhD in religion with an emphasis in New Testament and Christian origins at Claremont Graduate University. And we talked about her chapter, Human Nature, Creation, and the Fall. Thanks for spending the time with us, Gay. This has been really fun. Thanks, Blair. I enjoyed coming. Thank you for listening to Meet the Early Day Saints, a Wayfair Magazine short audio series. Each guest is a contributor to the book Ancient Christians, an Introduction for Latter-day Saints from the Neil A. Maxwell Institute for Religious Scholarship at BYU. If you enjoyed this interview, don't miss the others in this series. You can learn more and subscribe to Wayfair Magazine at wayfairmagazine.org. Thanks to our sponsor, the Faith Matters Foundation, who promotes an expansive view of the restored gospel. And if you're looking for an expansive view, I also recommend my podcast, Fireside with Blair Hodges. It's where we fan the flames of curiosity about life, faith, culture, and more. You'll hear great interviews with incredible people that will really take you by surprise. Fireside with Blair Hodges is available anywhere you get your podcasts and also at firesidepod.org. I hope to see you there by the fire.